is no answer, there is no solution. We are doomed to be old and out of it and messed up. This is our life. It's 8.54 a.m. Saturday, December the 14th, 2019. I'm Bill. I'm Diane. It's the Bill and Diane Show. Speaking to you from the Geezerville Retirement Center. I was going to say, that was a pretty... I got myself a cup of coffee here, and I'm going to take me a sip. Depressing cold open. <laughs> well, it was just, we were just man, just finishing up ah, the, the previous conversation, which is not, it's not that depressing. It's just kind of, you know, I'm not that depressed by it. It's just annoying, and everybody has to go through it, so we're, yeah. just, we're just taking our turn at Geezerdom. The frustrations of cell phones is what we were talking about, because we have to get new cell phones. Yeah. But we were talking about every person, you, you have a technological cutoff point. You have a technological saturation point. Where my mom, it was computers, or it still is computers. She can't even, I, the number of times that I've tried to get her to do email, even email, something as arcane as email. Nope, nope. Yeah, my mom wouldn't either, and I always thought my mom would just love the internet. I know, me too. That's why I thought my mom... The world of email would be amazing for my mom. Well, and especially for my mom, she was always such an information... Junkie. Well, yeah, she just really loved to look things up, and I thought, man, mother, this is the way you can look it up. Anyway, but... And anyway. I and I was saying how my grandmother used a microwave that my parents gave her as a bread box. So you know, yep. these are the things that happen. Anyway, but it has been a hectic week here in Lake Amphetamine. It's as been a hectic per usual. Hectic few weeks. Hectic few weeks, and we've been missing again. We've been kind of being spotty. What does this mean, Diane? Are we losing our sense of onwardness? Are we, are we losing our trajectory? Our sense of purpose? <laughs> I just know. I've never had a sense of purpose. I never had a sense of purpose with this. I thought it was just whenever we could sit around and chat on a Saturday morning. I, I believe that is the purpose, actually. <laughs> so, but we do tend to apologize for not having been here when we, when we miss a week or two, right? Don't we? I like consistency. I think if you're going to have a show, people should be able to rely on the show. That's what I think. See, I think my problem is that I don't think of it as a show. I just think about it. Talking to you on the Saturday morning. But we were, yeah, we, okay. Except with the with the tape recorder on. Although and I can't even remember. It's not even a tape recorder. I can't remember the last time that we. I mean, I know that we've had concerts and and various things somewhat in the way, but there was. Oh jeez. I don't even remember. Hold, What's hold on. And scene. <laughs> so so. <laughs> I think we could start with this laughing because it's funny. We determined it was November 23rd was the last time we did a Bill and Diane show. So we've missed two Saturdays. And a lot of it was because of some chores and tasks that had to be done. Uh, I had the Ancient Victories publication layout and and I was having issues with it. So I had to uh, work on that. And And I had to work. I was working on a couple Saturdays. You worked on a Saturday. And so... So it was sort of a conglomeration of... But it's not like we have to make up excuses. This no, is what we do. This exactly. is the This is the Bill and Diane role. This is how we do things. So, anyway. But there was some fun stuff that happened. I got to play at Grumpy D's. 
The night of the 23rd, I played at Grumpy D's. I was unable to make it. Diane was not able to make it, but, but my friends Marjorie and her, her wife Nancy were there, and I hadn't seen them in a long time. And it was great, and there was a bunch of other cool people there. And there was an empty seat right down front that never got filled. Pardon me, I'm going to have another drink of coffee. Because that was where Diane would have been sitting if she'd been there. You boy. I established that early on. That's good coffee. And, the you know, there wasn't a huge crowd there, but it was a decent-sized crowd, definitely a quorum. But nobody sat in that chair. <laughs> I thought that was a phenomenon worth mentioning. And, man, I really tried to make it. I yeah. was even in the car, but I just... Wouldn't. My digestive system would not allow me to to go. It was not going to have it. just wasn't meant to be, Diane. It wasn't I meant to be. And then I played a concert with Amy Reed at that the C&P Coffee Company. That was fantastic. You know, the C&P Coffee Company. I don't know what that what it is about that place. It's kind of like the antique of the north to me because it feels so right. This, the, what is being presented seems completely seems proportional to the space that it's happening in. Uh, we're getting a, some, some kind of, I guess the, you could call them regulars. Oh, definitely. To the thing. Well, I think just... it's because people are coming. It, it has the feeling of a party. Yeah. And I think people are just coming, if they can, to the party. Right. Because uh, everybody feels like they know each other in the audience, I think, uh, to a certain degree. and. Right. And then you like this time, Tim. Tim Swiger came, Scott and Rhonda came, Terry and Paris came, and my Alice and Amelia came. Amy had kids and sisters and relatives there. It was just no, everybody no. was introducing each other to everybody. <laughs> it's funny. My my daughter ended up sitting next to Amy's son, and you know it was just great. And segueing into your other concert with Jim. Segueing. Is that what we're doing now? Segueing. Yes. I just want to say that it's it's interesting because in the coffee houses, you're so immediately in front of the performers, and everybody has this very uh, boisterous response to the songs. You know, everybody's, uh, and you're you're so close to the people around you that you just feel that energy. Yeah, you can re- you can read the audience and you can see yeah. the excitement because there's no yeah. Are you, Everybody you're, is. You're, you're contrasting right. the two. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. Well, because at that Amy Reed concert, which was on Thursday. Yes. Everybody was really. The energy was so high. I mean, I could feel it in the audience. You just felt like you were surfing on all this great energy. Right. Um, everybody was having a blast. Everybody was enjoying uh, enjoying the songs and and hooping and hollering as usual. And then you had a, a concert at the Tim Noah Thumbnail Theater with right. Jim Page. On Sunday. The on Sunday, Sunday at 4 o'clock. And in this setting, it's a beautiful theater. I mean, the, they have these gorgeous royal blue velvet draped behind you and stained glass windows. It's a and converted church sanctuary. It's just beautiful. But because... The house lights are down like a regular theater. You can't see the audience. Well, in the audience, I was out in the audience, and the audience was very polite in their response. Yeah, it was more like a theater performance, which is not as immediately interactive. So I actually asked them to turn the house lights up 
a little bit because I wanted to see the audience. Because... But you did it after the break. Right. And it was funny because I was sitting in the audience and thinking, are people enjoying this? And, and then we went out to the break and everybody was just gushing over it. I thought, wow, I did not feel that at all you weren't picking that up in the crowd like you were well because and i i kind of assumed it was because it was a lot more formal um, yeah formal yeah and and the people were just being polite right i couldn't read it at all uh, that much either of course nobody there knew who i was didn't know me from straight up (laughs) but so i was kind of but they discovered you that night in the first set i was kind of like are they really into this or or what (laughs) They were really into it. They, it turns out they were really into it. So. Well, it was the northern crowd. We aren't up in the north very much. Yeah. Had to get up there more. But both those concerts were just stellar experiences for me as an audience. It was just, I just, I was riding high. And then, then. on Thursday yeah. of this week, we got to go down to the Antique Sandwich Company, the original sacred ground. For the 50th anniversary of Victory Music. That's 50 the, the, the Ancient Victory's open mic was on Thursday night. It's the quarterly thing that they do. They've been doing it quarterly ever since Diane's 50th birthday party at the Antique Sandwich, where the Ancient Victories began. So it was good. To be a part of that. And man, there was a lot of people there. What a night. It was an incredible What a night, what a crowd, what a band. (laughs) It was. You should have been there. It was amazing to just acknowledge the community that has been created. And uh, when it does cause you to think about where your life would be if Victory Music hadn't been in our lives, we would not be together if it hadn't been for Victory Music, because we never would have met. That's right. And we never would have re-met. And uh, all of the chain of events that led us to being here right now doing this show, and me talking about my gigs and all that kind of stuff, really has its beginnings in Victory Music, because it was fortunate to me that the first open mic I ever went to was a Victory Music open mic, wherein the audience is asked to treat the performers with respect. That's right. And listen to what they're doing because they work at this, which is the philosophy of Victory Music, and I think that is the thing that has set Victory Music apart from all other open mics uh, and all other kind of modes of thinking for as long as I've been alive. And I've been to a lot of open mics, which have nothing like the kind of respect and um, opportunities that the Victory Music open mics had because they let you learn how to work a microphone They let you learn how to be comfortable in front of people. To get over the hump of being courageous enough to sing something that you wrote yourself, maybe something that you just wrote, something that you're trying out, you get over those those hurdles of nerve uh, in your own body, and you are suddenly, you can do anything. You know, you feel impervious, and when you can be on stage and feel bulletproof, it's, an, it's a feeling like no other feeling. I sometimes think that I am more myself when I am standing on stage playing my songs than any other, any other minute in my life. You know? Including this one? Yeah, this one too. Especially this one. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, wait. I dropped my script. Let me go. 
so anyway, what when you try to quantify what victory music represents, what it means in at least in our two lives, yeah, it's you can't. Where, what would I be doing <laughs> if it weren't if I hadn't been 15 years old and had my mom take me to the other side of the tracks in Auburn to to this event? And you know, I I don't remember how I ever heard about victory music originally, except. I went to the Victory Store with my friend Ron to see his brother play, and that's when it, the first time I looked at I saw Chris Lunn, and I'd seen the posters all over town, the ones with the funny pictures of Jim and Baby Gramps, you know, <laughs> that were Xeroxes of Xeroxes of Xeroxes, and and that's how I found out about Victory Music, and I think I called the number, two five three eight six three six six one seven, which I have had memorized since I was yeah. in high school, except the area code is different, um, and asked. Where's the open mic happening? They gave me the address, and I said, Mom, will you take me up? Well, I do remember the first time I heard about Victory Music. It was because I went to the Folk Life Festival, and I was looking for Jim Page. I thought that he would be playing at the Folk Life Festival. I did not know at that time that he would just be roaming the ground somewhere, that he wasn't going to be on a stage. And I... At that time, I had just been introduced to his music, and, and that was really my introduction to a local performer in a small setting. Right. And th- I just instantly fell in love with that experience yeah. and have never fallen out of love with that experience. It's been a long love relationship with me and the local intimate coffeehouse scene. <laughs> so I asked at the Folklife booth where I might be able to find this. And they, they said, you know, you might want to check in with the Victory Music booth because they have a newsletter that has a calendar in it. And and so I was introduced to the Victory Music Review, which was a very hard-to-read publication. <laughs> no, no. Well, it was. <laughs> and I, I was trying to figure out where things were, but I... Uh, I saw that they needed volunteers, and so I called up Chris. I did not know. Yes, and I said I would like to volunteer to help out with some of this stuff, and and I said I would like to volunteer to do the because they need people to call clubs and find out what the events were, and I said I'll do that, and I'll do. I I had several things. Chris has often said afterwards that. He was saying, no, whoa, <laughs> just take one of those things. Yeah. But I not only took all on all those things, but then eventually took on a whole lot more. That's right. That's right. So not something I have regretted. No. And Victory Music, during that five-year span that I was totally immersed in it and the work of it, it could be frustrating and tiring and all that, but it was always this feeling when you had the open mics or the concerts, you just felt on the top of the world, yep. you know? You felt like, this is why I've been doing all these frustrating, tiring things people for can, these moments. People can say that they've got their fingers on the pulse of what's really going on, but we're actually beneath the skin riding in the veins of what's going on. (laughs) We're actually in the flow. We are the pulse. And that's what Victory Music really was. Marjorie and I were talking yesterday about the fact that our musical ambitions, what they were when we knew each other back when we were in our 20s and 30s, 
Marjorie and I. I met Marjorie back in college. And Marjorie has played a key role in my rediscovering Victory Music because she was the one who told me about the open mic at the Antique Sandwich Company while we were in Spokane at school. And I said, wow, I'm going to check that out. Because I had, I had met Mike Nelson and Neil Woodall when I was in Tacoma for a year, 79, 80. And in 81, Marjorie tells me about the Antique Sandwich Company. I go home for Christmas or Thanksgiving break. I go to the Tuesday night open mic, and there's Neil and Mike and T.R. Stewart. And, you know, first time I walked in there, I was like, wow, I'm going to come back here. This, this feels, <laughs> here's, here's this, here's a community. What the hell? And I didn't even know what it was then when I walked in. Because when you're 19, what does community mean to you, you know? You don't even know what community means. Well, I don't but even it, think that when I was involved that I appreciated. I mean, I did know it somewhat. Right. But as I've gotten older, I recognize that that was what that was. Yeah, it was our was tribe. The, was our, our tribe, tribe, our community. Yeah. Although I did talk to Neil Woodall about the... But that was later. That was on my 50th birthday that he was saying it was Folktopia. It was. You know, that was after so. it had been long established, see? Yeah. And the Ancient Victories was kind of a rediscovery of, or an acknowledgement of the importance of that. And, hey, this is still available to us. All we've got to do is get Chris back on board. Once we get, if we, we can get Chris to be the... And so Marjorie and I were talking about what's life going to be like after Chris Lund? You know, and, and it's like... Because of the trajectory that we saw in our 20s and 30s about our careers and the fact that we did not meet those expectations of ourselves, something in us has languished. And what, because she was talking about open mics and, you know, and like the Columbia City Theater and, and, and touring and playing in other towns and bigger rooms. And I'm like, I don't know that I want that anymore. Right. What we have lost is the small. Is that little? Yeah, that's right. All the little cafes and coffee shops and stuff like that, that that Victory Music perpetuated, uh, and actually helped to go. We have lost that sense of the small, and so when Marjorie and I are talking about having a song circle and things like that, it's like let's find the small again. Yeah. Because we're not, if we keep beating ourselves up because we didn't make the big time, or we still think we can strive for that, nobody has the energy or the desire for that anymore. Like with the new album, I don't want, you know, when Chris is talking to me about getting together with the Neebles and talking about getting radio airplay, that has limited interest to me because right. the next step, that would logically mean that I want a tour. And I wouldn't mind going down and playing in Eugene for a weekend or in Corvallis or do Eugene on Friday and Corvallis on Saturday and then drive home on Sunday. That sounds like a total blast to me. Or go to Spokane and do the same thing, you know. But I'm not looking for that as a lifestyle. No, not any, not anymore. So, how do we accommodate the fact that for people like me and Marjorie, we're still completely engaged in the thing that is the fascination for us, which is writing the songs and playing for people. How do, you know, places like the CNP, places like the Cooth Buzzard, uh, places like Grumpy D's are the places where that kind of thing can still happen. And if we're going to, if there's going to be an audience for it in twenty or thirty years, people like us have to carry it forward, have to make sure that people don't forget that this can happen. That's right. That things like what happened with Victory Music a lot is still possible. Because there's so many times people walk into a performance in one of these little cafes or bookstores and they seem so amazed. People do this? 
It's like a phenomenon they'd never seen before, which is exactly how I felt when I went to the other side of the tracks to a Victory Music open mic for the first time when I was That's, 15. And that was what I was looking for after first seeing Jim Page at the other side of the tracks. Right. I thought, I want more of that. And I thought it was just with Jim, but it was with everybody. everybody. It just was, I hadn't, ex I hadn't experienced that It was before. the closest thing to my experience of music when I was a kid, which was in somebody's living room with yeah. my dad and his guitar getting everybody to sing a Wabash Cannonball or, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And so that living room feel uh, where everybody can see everybody and everybody can actually meet everybody and there can be a conversation going on, I think that is how I want my musical career to finish out. I want more of that, please. Well, but that was the thing that was so evident to me during that night at the open mic was because first of all, at the Ancient Victories open mics, they have a ledge behind the stage that has a photos of, propped of all the people who have gone, have uh, died. And a list, and the list is ever growing, both in the publication and on the stage of Gone those but not names. forgotten. And, and I was looking at all the, because there were, that this was a, an older audience by design. I mean, this is this is a group of musicians that Chris actually had on the stages between this and this time. And and oh man, I mean, I was just overcome with emotion several times in the night. At first, I was just totally enjoying it and just riding high on all the the fun of the of seeing everybody and but then when uh Chris actually had several people that were sort of featured um Jim Page because he had actually been on the stages even down in Palo Alto that that before Chris had moved up to before Chris State. moved to Seattle I mean to Tacoma area and uh Tim Noah, who was on the first open mic stage. And Mike Dumovich. And Mike Dumovich, who was also on the first open mic stage. At Courtsy Coffee House. At Courtsy Coffee House. And when, let's see, how did the order go with that? I know it was. Of those three, Mike Dumovich. Mike, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Jim, Mike and then Jim and then. then Tim. Well, first of all, Mike was just blew my socks off as, as he always does and he had just had shoulder surgery i mean god but when jim got up and chris had announced him about how he had gotten up and played the very first open mic that chris had hosted that jim played fireside and that he was 17 years old when he had played it uh, when he announced that I don't know whether Jim had already been planning to play that, but I just started weeping from the the first chords because of how many years I've heard that song and what it means to me. You know, this song that is so familiar to me, but also the the recurring chorus that says... All these songs. All these songs. <laughs> I must taste them all sometime. Yeah. All these songs taste like sacred wine. I must taste them all sometime. 
I'm getting emotional now, too. Not of me. Course, not me. I don't get emotional. I'm not like that. Nobody ever expects me to get emotional. Um, anyway, uh, and then when Tim got up, yeah. uh, because Tim and I go way back in the Victory Music days when I used to uh, handle the children's concerts. And and I just had, it almost felt like my life was passing before my eyes with all the memories of these people at all the ages that they were in my head. It just was so special to me. It was a good night. Man, I mean, I, I had... I had not seen some of these performers perform very frequently in the 1980s, like J.W. McClure and Mick McCartney, but they were legend in my, in my hearing about them. And uh, both of those performers were there that night. There were so many performers, we can't mention all the... But T.R. Stewart was there. Yeah, but T.R. Stewart and Brian Butler, you know, we could go on and on. That's... But but the reason why I've mentioned particularly J.W. McClure and Mick McCartney is because I had not heard them play in the 1980s. That They weren't really around that frequently. And I have since become very well aware of J.W.'s music. We, uh, we've been enjoying his music for so long. But Mick McCartney just blew me away that night. He did a total off-the-cuff song that he was just making up the verses as he went. I was just blown away. Um, and I was thinking, oh, that's why I've been hearing about this guy for so long. So I just wanted to put in that little bit. 50 years of victory music. So talk about what we're presenting here musically. Well, first of all, Rob Folsom had, at my 50th birthday party, done a tribute to Chris that we thought would be very apropos at this time. And Rob Folsom, who has also already died, so one of the, the people that's up on the wall uh, at the antique. And Jim Page's Fireside, which meant so much to us. I think I ought to say a word because maybe I'm one of the best qualified to do so about Chris Lund. We all, of course, owe so much to Chris Lund that we don't even think about it anymore. We don't even consider it anymore. I mean, I'm up here with this thing in front of me singing and playing guitar. I'm out there doing a little of it. I'm doing sound. Because I came to this open mic, which was created by Chris Lund. And we not only have those actions, which were so many over so many years, so many that no one will ever know about, we can thank him, but we really don't know what we're thanking him for, because we weren't there when he did so much of it. Oh, you remember all those reviews that were assembled up there, remember? And all those flyers. I remember going around to phone booths with Chris Lund. Tacking up these little cards that said there's a concert such and such a place. Yeah, we really don't know what we're thanking him for. But, you know, he's been an awfully good friend to me, and an awfully good friend to all of us. 
and we should give a rousing, rousing She put her feet beside me and the sun was going down She told me all those secrets, all those candles back in town Seven minutes elsewhere, and it rained with all its might The sun had long since gone and yet it stayed up all at night She held her eyes both in her hands and gave them both Avalanche exploded and a slave somewhere broke free. Yes, all these songs taste like lilac wine. I must taste them all sometime. For a walk among the rain, among the snow The wind blew like a cistern and I had no place to go I saw a man was lying with his face into the wet His coat was torn, he whimpered, broken glass, a cigarette My eyes were filled with alleys as I helped him to his feet He thanked me with a smile and I walked off down the street Yes, all these songs Taste like Arabian wine I must taste them all Sometime Sister spoke away with innocence. She 
She drew her bolt aside Stay here if you must I know exactly what you need She smiled like a fireside One hand upon the bell I asked her if she knew And if she knew How could she tell She laughed and pointed With her Jesus to the sky This is what you need And what you need Is when you die She offered me some wine, I saw her hand white as bone I told her I was lost and could she show me my way home She laughed again, twinkled and her hood fell to the side And I heard her say right here with me among the fireside I excused myself and left her, and I left her all alone she with no relations and I with no way home Yes, all these songs taste like sacred wine I must taste them all someday